0: Welcome to the Newberry Tart Podcast. Your hosts, Marcy and Jenny, are talking and drinking their way through Newberry Award winning books, past and present. Hi, and welcome back to the Newberry Tart Podcast. I'm Marcy. And I'm Jenny. And today we are speaking with Jasmine Warga, Newberry Honor winning author of Other Words for Home and author of the new book, The Shape of Thunder, which came out on May 11th
1: jasmine is one of the many authors from around the world participating in the miami book fair the nation's largest gathering of writers and readers of all ages She is looking forward to sharing her work and thoughts and new ideas with everyone in person and online please visit miami book fair for more information or follow mbf at miami book fair hashtag Miami Book Fair 2021.
0: Please check out our website for our interviews with some of the other Miami Book Fair authors like Meg Medina, Jason Reynolds, Jennifer Holm, and Savannah Ganeshaw. Jasmine, thanks so much for being with us today.
2: Thank you guys for having me. I'm excited to get to talk with you.
1: So, of course, you won a Newbery Honor for Other Words from Home. Have you always written poetry?
2: You know, that's a good question. So, a part of me wants to say yes, and a part of me wants to say no, and I'm going to explain why, and that I've always loved poetry. Uh, it's been a form that I think that I've enjoyed since I was a child and, and loved particularly lyrical picture books to a teenager whose love of reading was reignited when my English teacher gave me a copy of Diving Into the Rack by Adrian Rich. Uh, But that said, I was always in my own writing, I think, really focused on the idea of story and narrative. And I think for so long I had kind of had this uh, false kind of delineation between poetry and stories or novels. And it wasn't until Other Words for Home wasn't working at all in prose that it occurred to me that I could put it into verse. And so I consider myself foremost a lover and champion of poetry and then a dabbler in, in writing my own poetry, if that makes sense. Yes, that makes perfect sense. But I, I mean, I personally
1: would say that you – are a poet um, after reading this book. I think it's just so filled with such beautiful imagery and so many emotional points that are conveyed in such great poetic language. I respect that you call yourself a dabbler, but I would respectfully say I think you're a
2: poet. <laughs> well, thank you. I, I, that, to me, is like the utmost title. I Poets are sort of my heroes in, in terms of writing, and, and poetry is where I turn to when I feel stuck in any project I'm working on on whether it's a verse project or a prose project and that I think poetry reminds us of kind of the capacity that language has and it's all of its amazing kind of corridors and tricks and loops and so when I want to feel excited and invigorated about language again I turn to poetry.
1: And that's so interesting to hear you talk about that because in in other words for home it is about returning to oneself and reclaiming oneself in a lot of ways and so for you to always come back to poetry as a touchstone it it just kind of mirrors the book for me a little bit
2: Yeah and I think Jude in particular since she's learning this new language is really of course interested in like the the poetry that exists from translanguaging, right? This idea of figuring out how to say what you want to say in this new language. And well, English is my first language. I, you know, I grew up with a parent who English is not their first language. And so I think in our household, I was always thinking a lot about why the English language is the way it is, or what does it mean that I repeated this idiom from school that my father didn't understand? Or what does it mean that he is repeating this Arabic proverb to me but in English and so a little bit of that is lost in translation and what does that mean and you know and how do we use language to kind of i guess decipher the the liminal space between different languages
0: speaking of the the cultural differences of language I read an interview a 2020 interview you did in interview magazine where you were talking about my heart and other black holes and you mentioned that it, it made a difference how she feels as an outsider, as a first-generation American. And of course, in other words, for Home, your main character has that sort of alien feeling because she's a refugee, but her best friend, Layla, says that she's lucky because she knows where she belongs and and what she is, and she's not stuck in between. So both in sort of just ordinary life, but in terms of the language that you're using for poetry or or pros, like how has that affected you? Like that particular issue?
2: Yeah, that's a that's a beautiful question. I think it's definitely something that I've never felt like I fit. Right. So here in America, I grew up in a very, a, a pretty, I guess I would say, white, not diverse, small town near Cincinnati, Ohio. I was the only child in my elementary school classes who had a parent who had been born somewhere other than. America who had a parent I'm pretty sure the only one who had a parent who spoke a language whose first language was something other than English so I didn't feel I felt different for my peers I didn't really have language to express why I felt different for my peers I didn't have language to express why it made me feel uncomfortable that when I was with two of my best friends and we went you know to a summer camp that I was always asked, well, where are you from? In a way that they weren't asked that same question, even though we were all from the same place and and lived on the same block. And I think I was always searching for that language, this way to carve out, to explain why I I felt so unsure of my identity at my place. And then when we would go as a family, uh, back to Jordan to visit um, with my family over there for the summer. I always also felt like an outsider there, right? Like I was too American. I, I didn't speak Arabic fluently. I clearly stood out as, as an outsider. Um, and my mom my mom is white American. So I also had this like biracial uh, questioning going on too, Of am I enough of this, am I enough of that? And so I think that my writing in lots of ways, I turned to writing and I turned to stories to ask these big questions about identity. And in writing, I have found my own language. And I think I talk a lot now about how, for so long, I was really afraid of my hyphenated identity. I thought that it was something that was broken about me and that I had to choose between these different parts of myself. And it's from language that I've kind of healed that. And I've learned that there's strength in all these different parts of myself and learning how to put them together. And so I think that my stories, well, some of them engage more directly with the idea of identity than others, are always interested in that question of how do we use language to make sense of ourselves? And how do we use language to carve out a reality uh, that makes sense when the world can, can feel baffling and when we can feel like we don't fit? And I think I am always writing from an outsider perspective, but I think so many of us Um, that turned to writing and particularly that turned to writing uh, for young people. It's because when we were a young person, we had so so many of these types of questions about how do we fit into the world.
1: You write about all of this so beautifully. And I I think I just see it in, I mean, I see it in other words for home, but I I see it in your earlier works as well. So I know that's appreciated by younger readers just as as it is by older readers like us.
0: I'm sorry that, you had to deal with that but it must it must really inspire you to help solve that problem. There was another interview I read of yours with Publishers Weekly, I believe, where you mentioned some books including a Newbery book, Mixed-Up Files of Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler, awesome book, and you said that these stories about brave creative girls made me think that I could be too. So I wanted to know, how does it feel to know that you're part of taking that to like the next and very necessary level where you create these smart and brave characters, but they're characters that a much wider range of readers, especially readers of color can see
2: themselves in. Yeah. So that's the question that when I start to think about it too much, I start to get teary. This is the thing that I think a lot about, about the fact that the Newberry committee really like changed my life and and, and giving Other Words for Home that particular award, because I do think a lot about how the books that I read as a young kid had that sticker on it, and to me that sticker meant an American story, American literature, and and to give that sticker to Other Words for Home and saying that Jude's story is an American story just means something that I don't quite have the the language to express, but I, I really hope that we are moving towards this idea of a more inclusive understanding of, you know, who can be a protagonist and the value in reading about protagonists outside of yourself too. So as excited as I am for other Arab girls, for other Muslim girls to, to see Jude and to have that story, I'm equally excited for kids who don't come from those backgrounds to find Jude's story. Because as I said in that interview, I found myself in all of those other Plucky Newberry and Newberry Honor heroines, right? And and I think that I learned a lot from having to dig deep and find the ways in which I was similar to Claudia Kincaid and the ways in which we were different. And I think that that's what's so beautiful about stories, right? Is how we can like peel back all those layers and and examine and examine ourselves through kind of analyzing characters. So, so that's what. Yeah, I, I, I'm sorry. That's a little bit <laughs> intersting. I get like <laughs> I get emotional when I think about that that question too much because it is just completely incomprehensible to my 11 year old self to think about having found this book in the library with that sticker on it. It is just completely um, shocking me. It it's shocking to my my old self. <laughs> 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 and
1: I love the idea that every time you see your book and you see the metal sticker that. It, it, how much it means. I know it means a lot to every author who gets it, but I don't know if we've had anyone explain exactly what it means to them in this way. And so that's, thank you for sharing that. That's really, really special. Can you tell us about your Newberry experience, like actually going to the ceremony?
2: Yeah. So I didn't get to go to the ceremony because of, oh, yeah. Okay. Um, so it was all virtual. So in some ways, it still feels a little bit like a dream, if that makes sense. Like I think that it doesn't have like I, it's, the timeline is so mixed up for me in that this incredibly impossible thing that I still can't believe really happened. Happened in January 2020, and then the whole world shut down in March 2020. But then in June 2020, I was, you know, on this Zoom phone call with so many other writers and creators whose books I beyond uh, admire, and couldn't believe that my book w- was in the same you know company as theirs but then log the zoom calls off and i'm back to you know staring at the the piles of, of laundry of my kids that i, that I need to <laughs> put away so i think there's just like was, was i'm was i'm sure it that cognitive dissonance i'm sure exists even if i had gotten to go to, to the event and accept the award but I, my, I guess the thing that makes me the most sad is that I wasn't able to meet in person, um, the people who served on the committee and just, and thank them and uh, express my gratitude. Cause like I said, I, um, I, that's just the overwhelming feeling that I have when, when I think about that moment.
1: Do you remember getting the phone call?
2: I do well. I do, and I don't. I feel like it's like almost like one of those things where it's like the sheer adrenaline. You kind of like black it out a little bit. But what I remember is that, you know, I, I my agent editors say that like the landscape has changed because of like social media and stuff. That like before the, the Mock Newberry stuff wasn't so like prevalent. Like authors weren't being tagged in it. So I wish I could have said that I was like super chill the night before like ALA was the L.A. awards were going to be announced, but I, but I knew they were happening and I felt like stressed out. And then I felt silly that I was stressed out because I'm like, how like insane are you to to think that like, that this is like, even within the realm of possibility. And so I would talk myself down, but I was having problems getting to sleep. And then I had this like moment of, I guess I had this like epiphany. I feel like at 3am in the morning where I was like, it's okay. Like the book is not going to win this award, but it doesn't mean that it's not a book that's reached so many people. I'm so grateful for everything that had already happened for the book. I was like, and tomorrow's going to be a great day because I'm going to be able to celebrate all these other beautiful books that came out in 2019 that, you know, I was personally rooting for as a reader and and fan of of books for young people. And then it must've been around like 5am or something. What I remember is my husband saying, your phone is ringing. i had slept through, like, the ringer. I was in such a deep sleep. And I frantically picked up the phone, and then um, this really bright, warm voice, Krishna uh, O'Grady's voice, who the, was the uh, chair of the committee that year, said the words, you know, John Newberry. And I think I just started crying, and then I think I freaked out on them. was like, I don't have anything smart to say. And I think they were like, <laughs> what? Like, they were not expecting you to say anything. Like, I think they were really, like, weirded out. And then I remember just being like, can I tell my editor? And they were like, yeah, yeah, like your editor knows. No, I knew nothing about how the process worked. And then I got off the phone and then I was like really nervous that I had like hallucinated the whole experience and that I was gonna like wake up my editor. And be wrong. Oh, or no. Or they going kind to of change their mind? And so I, like, texted her, and I was like, hey, I think this, like, happened, but I'm not sure. And I also don't know if, like, they can change their mind and Aww. don't know what's happening. And then she was like, no, we know. And she and called and was, like, so excited. We were both crying, and I was crying. And then I cried, like, the whole day, which really, I think, weirded out my kids because <laughs> Knew that it was, like, something good, but that I was just, like, really emotional and, and crying. They were really young then, and, and so the idea of a sticker was very exciting to them. So it made sense <laughs> to them that I was, like, that excited about a sticker, which was nice to be, like, in that same <laughs> mindset with them. But that's what I remember from that day is just, like, just really feeling overwhelmed and not being able to quite express it. But I think it is because the Newberry is so unique, I think, and that, for me, it's the only award I understood as a kid. And so that really matters to me. And that like, not that I quite understood what it was about, but like, I remember those stickers on books and I have like tactile memories of like running my fingers over those stickers and just like the power that that sticker affords for audience and reach is just extraordinary. And so I was, like I said, I was just in complete shock. And uh, the way I process that is just being like overly emotional and crying all day and freaking out. Everyone. My even my agent was like, "This, you're like very emotional," and I was like, "Yeah,
0: I know." <laughs> I have so many questions about the shape of thunder, which listeners, if you have not read it, came out May 11th. You must go get it. It's amazing. I could go in so many different directions asking you about this book. I just first I have to just say I love this book. A lot of new books, when they come out, I start to read them, and I'm like, yeah, this is pretty good, but this is one of the ones that you just can't put down. I was going this sounds odd. I was going to say that it's a pervasively sad book, but I think the that's the wrong word. I think I think grief is a better word. And the book is to me about moving through grief and into healing. And so it's ultimately a very hopeful book because it does, it does do that. So I wondered if it was something that helped you through that kind of process yourself while you were writing it.
2: Yeah. Again, that's such a beautiful question. Thank you. And thank you for everything you said about the book. Yeah, it is. It was a really difficult book to write because I agree with you that there's a pervasive, sadness in the book and I don't even know if it's a sadness that abates by the end but I do think that there's hope and that's to me the guiding factor that's so important and for me it's always important when I write for young people that there's hope because I think that that's what I'm always aiming for is this really raw honesty and, and when you're really raw and you're really honest about the world and the the things that are going on in our modern world and what it can be like to be a kid who's 11 years old or 12 years old today. while also wanting my readers by the time they reach the end of the book to feel like there's a chance for them to make the world better, right? To, to help Help improve and to help heal, like you said, and move forward. And for me, this book it's asking a question I still don't know the answer to, which is you know, how do we live with the impossible? And can we change what seems impossible? And what does it mean to believe in changing the impossible? And those are all to me really big questions and 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 things that I wonder about, and, and things that I wanted to ask young readers to wonder about with me. So yeah, it, it did help me. It helps me to know that I think that when terrible things happen, there's always still love. And I think this book hits hits on that. And that's been my experience with loss and with grief. I've never experienced something like Cora and Quinn experiencing this book. So I, I can only exercise empathetic imagination, which is what I think the novelist's job is. But I can also pull from my own experiences of loss, right. And of anger Mm -hmm. and of kind of the, the freeing power that can come from forgiveness, uh, which is another theme of the book, this idea of, of how do we lead with love and how do we forgive with love? And so those are all, like I said to me, the most difficult thing about the book and the thing that makes it a difficult book to talk about is I think all of my books are question books. They're books that are more interested in questions than they are the shape of thunder pushes that even more that it's really a book that I don't think ask has answers. And, and that can be, that can be difficult and that can be difficult, make the book difficult to talk about. If that makes sense.
0: Yeah. But I mean, not having answers is, is more interesting. Sometimes it, this book is a little bit of a Newbery lover's perfect book. I mean, you even mentioned some Newbery books, like mm-hmm. she recites the last line of the one and only Ivan to fall <laughs> asleep, and her sister's favorite book is The Tale of Despereaux. But even more so in tone, it reminds me of When You Reach Me. Oh. So it's funny because the cover blurb on there is actually from Rebecca yeah, Stead. Yeah,
2: <laughs> thank you. That's like a dream compliment Rebecca Stead. It's my very... I'm like writer heroes. So thank you. That's, that's, you've made my day. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so the style of writing and the tone and
0: also that focus on that, like impossible time travel task. So I was speaking of like answers or not answers. I was kind of halfway expecting some sort of magical realism, like at the end where they actually accomplish the time travel. I think it's better for not having gone in that direction, but did you consider that?
2: I definitely did. And I actually thought the book might at points, which is why I hope the book feels that way for readers. Mm -hmm. And that I wasn't sure what this book was. I had this idea, right, about the responsibility that our kids hold to fix this problem that I don't think should be theirs to fix. Um, And I was thinking a lot about the ways uh, young people who I talked to, because I was working on this book while. I had before the pandemic, right when I was having the opportunity to get to go to lots of schools to talk about other words for home, and this book was kind of shaped by conversations I had with kids about lockdown drills and about gun violence and about the fear and trauma they were holding. And so I was thinking about responsibility, and from thinking about responsibility, somehow my brain settled on, on this idea of of two girls who literally feel this responsibility to fix this terrible thing that has happened, and so. I was riding my way into that. Unsure, like, would they be able to fix it in the way that they believed they would be able to fix it? Or what does it mean to fix something? And what is time travel, right? Was another question I was really interested in. If you want to get into this with me, of this idea of, like, you know, there's the obvious idea of time travel, which is what Cora and Quinn are obsessed with, like at that physics level of actually moving places in time. But I'm really interested, too, in the idea of the actions that we make today are also a form of time travel, right, that we're changing the world in a way that's going to make the world different in the near future and in the far future and what kind of responsibility and power is there in that and so but yeah I was confused a lot of the book about what kind of book it was and I was like oh my gosh am I writing an actual science fiction book are they actually going to do this and then I realized that wasn't what this book I think needed which is not at all because I'm not interested in someday writing a speculative book it was more about this particular book and again those questions that I wanted to ask what was the best vehicle for exploring that kind of realm of human experience and, and that ending of wanting the reader to ask that question of, well, what exactly is time travel and how do we change the future and what's the best way to change the future? And to me, those are really like interesting questions and really wonderful questions to get to engage in with young people.
0: And I think it worked better for the story, but it is, it's interesting. I saw that you were briefly a, a science teacher and that's so evident that you have this interest in science. I did want to know, if we could ask about like the research that you did into wormholes and were there any theories that you didn't put into the book?
2: Yeah. So that's a great question. So it's so funny because I just want to give this like kind of preamble that I feel like I spent my whole childhood running away from science and that my immigrant father really, really wanted me to be a doctor. And I felt all this pressure to be a doctor. And my argument back for why I needed to be a writer, not a doctor, was always that I don't like science. I'm not good at science. I don't have an aptitude for science. And I think it was mostly that I didn't have the type of brain that was able, I kind of like Quinn, I couldn't hold these facts, right? And the way oftentimes we teach science um, in elementary school and in middle school is this rote memorization of But as I got older, I realized that the things that I loved about stories were so evident in science too. This idea of trying to better understand our world and uh, really being curious about kind of but to me, science is magic in lots of ways, that when you look at things, you're just like, that's Im- that's impossible, but it's possible through science and through ingenuity and just through kind of the miracles um, of the universe. And so I did teach science really briefly and then loved doing the research for this book because part of like my reading life, I read a lot of like nonfiction science articles because I'm fascinated by these things. And I a lot of the theories... That I was the most fascinated by I ended up in the book. Like there's that MIT professor who I think I mentioned briefly in the book cool. who really says that like it's possible. And it's possible somebody's already done it. And like when you when you get into that level of physics, it's more like philosophy. It's like theory, right? Mm-hmm. Of this idea of are there multiple universes? I was really—I read a lot of like string theory stuff. I, as a kid, I loved like the the Golden Compass books. Oh yes. <laughs> are there, you know they're not that exactly time travel, but they kind of are because it's based on a physics principle, right? Of this idea of like multiple universes and like how you would cut through the multiple universes. But I got really interested in wormholes because to me, that seemed like the most likely way that two girls could figure it out because like they didn't have like the money and resources to build some kind of like time contraption or whatever it might be so but i'm like and i'm fascinated by sort of the the intersection between science and mythology if that makes sense that like for so long we've had this idea of like a wormhole but like it hasn't always been called that it shows up in different cultures and different writings and so i'm always interested in like the ways myths can mirror science and science can mirror myths that that makes sense of like our human understanding of of exploring and being curious about the world absolutely
0: I love it that you're relating it to the golden compass because that is exactly the kind of thing that I had in mind when reading this book because you've you've got like the story is what matters the most but the science is there right and it's just sort of a context for the
2: the main characters issues yeah yeah, I was hoping to shore up enough for the reader that there would be that believability, right? That this like could happen. Because I do believe it could happen. I th- I think that the story could have gone where it could have happened. And so I wanted that feeling of wondering about that.
0: To deviate from the science, there was a point earlier in the book where Quinn and Cora are discussing something else. And they, they say about someone else who's trying to do something, it's not so much whether they're able to, but what they do afterward. So I feel like that's true not only of the people they're discussing and Quinn and Cora themselves, but it's also sort of what you're asking of your readers. Because a book like this, not only is it a great story, but it feels like you are doing writing as activism and reading it is sort of reading as activism. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about the resources that you uh, provided in your afterword for sort of further action.
2: Yeah. So my biggest thing, the biggest hope I have for the book more than anything is actually that it just raises awareness of this idea that we move out of complacency. I think that we're, I get so frustrated with certain things that the book brings up is I feel like as a collective society, we've just decided this is our new normal. And I want to kind of shake us out of that of saying, this doesn't have to be normal. This isn't normal for our kids and we can want better and there can be better. And so I'm hoping to generate conversation because I'm such a big believer in that conversation and just talking about things does move com- does move like the national conversation, right? And, and and does provide change. And actually, I'm gonna open the book right now if you don't mind because I know I listed oh yeah our resources which were mostly different organizations that I feel like are interested in that and interested in continuing this conversation and interested in finding what I believe to be a better way forward and not just accepting our status quo of thinking this is just how it is. And we're just always going to live with this threat and live with this issue. And we're going to design our schools around it. And we're going to have lockdown drills and all those things. And I think all of these organizations, some of which are founded by people, most of which are founded by people who have had a personal experience with gun violence, um, are a really good place to start just to like hear about what some of the other ideas are. I think for me, it's not necessarily endorsing the particular solution that any of these organizations is putting forth, but more endorsing the idea that I think there's a way that is better than what we have right now and to not lose sight of of wanting something that's better. And again, not to be lulled into this. Sense of something that I don't think should feel normal starting to feel normal.
0: That makes perfect sense. And for anybody who hasn't read it yet, the list of resources in the back is websites where you can further educate yourself about this. I I know a lot of people writing a book about this kind of topic might focus on sort of what happened. You know what I mean? So we were wondering what made you focus on. The tragedy's aftermath, rather than the tragedy itself.
2: Yeah, I think that I was nervous. I didn't want it to be like sensationalizing the act of violence. And well, the book is engaged with Quinn's brother, right, and her relationship with him, and, and and he's there. I didn't want to write a book that was so obsessed with the perpetrator of the violence. I feel like that's part of the problem of our media coverage, right, and mm-hmm. that we sensationalize for five minutes and then we don't think about the ways an act of violence like this causes trauma that lasts for years and years and years and the way it lives in these communities. And so I was wondering a lot about what some of these communities look like that we saw on national news, like a, a, a just a snapshot of them, while we'll reporters shoved, you know, microphones in their faces while they were crying. But what does it look like a year out? What does it look like two years out? What does it look like three years out? Do you recover? How do you recover? What does recovery look like? And I think those were the questions that I was more interested in because I felt like that other story had been told. And I also think that like, I was interested in question of audience, right? Like I was writing this book primarily for 10 to 14 year olds. And I wanted to like, ask all those big questions we were talking about before of like, how do you move forward? What does it mean to believe in the impossible? What does it mean to change the impossible? And to me, those were more like age appropriate questions for this audience, as opposed to something that was maybe going to cause more like fear or, or, or like focus too much on the violence. If that makes sense. So I I tried to be honest about the act and, and I think it's clear in the book, but I really wanted the impetus or the focus of the story to be on my main characters and on their journey and about healing, because that is something I was really interested in. Is like, how do we heal? What does it mean to heal? Um, and those to me were questions that I guess I, as a writer for young people felt more compelling and felt more geared towards this age of reader, if that makes sense.
0: It does. And I I liked actually that it started a year later because it, it, to do something like that right after the event would just not seem realistic. So that worked really well. Thank you. (laughs) Um, I also read that, you know, to go back to what you were talking about for Other Words for Home, how you went back and forth between the prose and free verse. I wondered if you had that uh, discussion about The Shape of Thunder because the, the, manner of writing felt like it could have switched over to free verse.
2: Yeah. So I wanted, I think I'm always interested in lyricism. And so particularly I think Quinn's chapters are really lyrical um, and trying to cultivate those two distinct voices. So Cora is my more like analytic brainy narrator. And so her sentences, while I hope are beautiful and do have some lyricality are more direct And Quinn's a little bit dreamier and thinks more in images. And so she has some of the longer sentences that have more, I guess, elaborate metaphors or things sprinkled in. The book was never in verse. I (laughs) got asked a lot, like, because I started working on the book really before Other Words for Home came out. And then once Other Words for Home came out, one of the primary questions I got asked, well, is it also in verse? And then I started to get nervous being like, oh, everyone just wants another verse novel. But I didn't think verse was actually right for this format. I couldn't, I, I didn't hear their their voices in verse, but I wanted to maintain that lyricality. And also, um, the chapters are pretty short, so I feel like the pace of it moves pretty like quickly, in the way that like verse novel often does. So I I I, I was thinking, I guess, about that. But to me, it had too media of a plot to be able to be held. Um, in verse, I think verse is really a fantastic form for a story like Other Words for Home, where the, the the kind of the star of the book is the voice of this one character and kind of the success of the book lives on whether you feel this attachment. Of course, The Shape of Thunder, the success of the book, rides on whether you feel attached to and Quinn also. But what I mean is there's just more going on with the science facts and with the wormhole. And I think that it might, I needed more words. And I think that verse is just like a a form that has more of an economy of language. So, but it's definitely a form I can see myself wanting to return to. The the thing that I'm working on right now is not verse, but is really like sparse. It's, I would say it's like almost like a hybrid between verse and prose. And so I'm always interested in what is the best form for a story to take. The ways in which the shape of thunder changed is initially Quinn was not a viewpoint character. And then I quickly realized like, This we need her viewpoint. Like the story doesn't work. There's no momentum. Uh, We're missing this certain kind of texture. And so pretty quickly on, I figured that out. But initially I thought it was Cora's story in a way because like Cora's story, not that it's easy, but it's an easier, more direct one to tell because you don't have to engage so much with the brother and you don't have to engage with these other moving issues. But I think that what makes, I hope makes the story more complex is that, I have Quinn's viewpoint and that that really helped bring to life their friendship more to be able to see it from from both sides but initially I thought Cora came to me first which I guess maybe also it makes sense in that in lots of ways I mean I think that I'm similar to both of them but outwardly I'm I'm much more obviously similar to Cora I guess. Are
0: you allowed to talk about your new project? We'd love to
2: hear about it. Yeah, yeah, I am. So the book we just finally settled on the what I think will be the final title, which is exciting, because you all will be the first ones I'm sharing that with. So Ooh. it's called A Rover's Story, and it will be out next fall. And it is the story of a Mars rover. So it's narrated by this Mars rover named Resilience, who's affectionately called Res, and it follows him on his journey from his creation in NASA's JPL lab. To his very dangerous mission to Mars. And he's kind of a neurotic, anxious rover who like worries a lot about, you know, his place and whether he's doing a good job and whether he's up to this mission. And it's a book about what does it mean to explore and what does it mean to have a big imagination? But it's also a book about what does it mean to leave everyone you've ever known and, and how do you deal with isolation? And so I think, So you can tell that this is my 2020 book and that my imagination was completely shook up. I've never written a non-human narrator before. I kind of described the book. I guess my marketing pitch would be that it's kind of like one and only Ivan, but with robots is sort of the writing style and the feel of the book, I hope. But it was inspired by my daughter who loves space. And I never been particularly like interested in the rovers or known a lot about them, but in July, of 2020 uh from her Zoom like meeting with her preschool the teacher had suggested like if anyone wants to watch the launch you can and of course my kid seized onto that cuz she loves space so I set it up for us and she says to me mommy do you think the robot is scared Aww. and that like got my imagination going so I started doing research on the rovers and learned all these incredible facts about them and so yeah, it was, it's definitely stretched my imagination in a different way than a lot of my other books have because it's a departure, I guess, stylistically and in concept, but I'm so excited about it. And I hope that
1: um, readers will be too. It sounds fantastic. What is your favorite Newbery book or if there are multiple we'd love to know
2: yeah so probably my very favorite newberry book is the bridge to tear betha by katherine patterson but i love so many newberry books charlotte's webb the giver ellen Shannon. and then more recently i love so many of jackie woodson's books but particularly feathers and brown girl dreaming i love everything kate dicamillo has ever written i love because of Winn dixie and then i think we talked a little bit about rebecca stead's work Mm-hmm. that I love, uh, when you reach me. And then the last book I would like to call out is that I super love Aaron and Shada Kelly's books. Like I love hello universe and I super love we dream of space. That was like my favorite book of last year that I read. So, um, I know I just shout out a bajillion books and I'm sure once this ends, I'll be like, okay, I wish that I could <laughs> other books. Um, but yeah, so I have so many, but, but
0: no, those I- are great. When, when Aaron, uh, and Chata Kelly's book one, I literally just like screamed out loud in my kitchen. <laughs> I was so happy.
2: <laughs> Morgan <Martin laughs> just had my whole heart. She was like my favorite character of 2020 that I read. I related to her so much and just my heart for her. And so I just love, I love, love, loved that book.
1: Yeah. We obviously are big Newbery fangirls. So <laughs> we, we under we are excited that you have so many titles to share.
2: Thank you so much for your really thoughtful and wonderful questions. It was such a like a a joy to to get to have this conversation with you oh thank you so much well
0: we greatly enjoyed it too and thank you so much thanks for joining us today on the newberry tart podcast again we were speaking with jasmine warga author of 2020 newberry honor book other words for home and the shape of thunder which came out may 11th please check out her
1: schedule of events at miamibookfair.com we are happy to partner with them this year and we hope you enjoy their programming
0: thanks for listening bye Production assistance for Newberry Tart is provided by Raphael Siebenman and Liam Grove. Graphic design by Liz Meitinger. Intro and outro by Ariana Hargrave. Theme music for this podcast is provided by the laid-back and local Throckmorton ukulele band. You can hear more of their music on Facebook. Find more Newberry Tart episodes at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Our website is Newberry Tart. That's N-E-W-B-E-R-Y-T-A-R-T dot com.